If you would uh, open your Bibles to Luke chapter one, uh, <clears throat> they gave me uh, they gave me the Jesus at twelve because they said it's ten verses. How do you get forty minutes out of twelve verses? And they said, well, the preacher can always do that, uh, so just give it to me. I wish uh, we had what we call a biography of Jesus, a story of all those details, all so many things that we would like to know that we don't have. The Gospels they they tell mostly the story of his death and resurrection. That's, that's nearly the entire thing. And very little of some other stuff we'd like to know. So that's not what the gospel intention was, to tell the whole story of Jesus, but to tell the saving story of Jesus. The rest of it we just don't get. But um, Luke is the best one at this for explaining how he went about writing the story and why he wrote it. He just comes out and tells us, and that's really a, an aid. And here's what he says, Luke chapter 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, there have been many compiling this story. Now, if I'm writing, if... if let me just say, uh, Mike Poppleton I'm looking at, and Mitch, and Kay. Um, who can I pick on here? Uh, see, I, I don't know who I'm safe to pick on. Dustin, um, do you know of anyone writing your life story? Mitch, anybody writing your life story down? You hope not. Uh, does anybody writing your life story down? Book of, book of life. Yeah, you hope your name's there. But why does anybody write? And, and, and here's the thing about this. I don't know what many means. Many to me means several. It means like there's a lot of people writing this story down, he says. I, there's nobody writing my story down, and probably after I die, there's not going to be anybody really clamoring to write my story, right? Famous people get their story told by few people. You might have several about Abraham Lincoln, all that. But he's saying, I want you to know right now there are many people telling the story. We've got four of them officially in the New Testament, but many doesn't sound like four to me. It sounds like Luke's aware there's a lot of people who are telling these stories, there's a lot of eyewitnesses out there who have a story to tell. Uh, and so he says, uh, I, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time now, to write an orderly account for you, O most excellent Theophilus. So he has somebody in mind that he's writing this to, and he says, I want, I want to make sure you have an orderly account. You know what an orderly account is? I wanted to make sure this is true. I wanted to go around, I wanted to substantiate these. Luke is a very careful researcher. He's not some guy who's just, here's a story here, and here's a rumor here, and let's throw it in. Luke says, I want to know this stuff. I want to know it. I don't want to hear these rumors. I want to take what I know is absolutely true from these eyewitnesses. And so he's saying, I interviewed people, the people who were there, I talked to them. And we're going to talk about just some of the people he talked to. I wanted an orderly account that you may have what? What's he want the believers to have? Certainty. What is certainty? 
I want you to be without a shadow of a doubt you know this is true. The stuff you're being taught is absolutely, totally substantiated and true. Are we asked to believe in stuff that has flimsy evidence? Does God ask us by faith to believe in stuff that may or may not have happened? Come on, church. No, we're not. I want you to know, Luke says, I researched this. I've asked people. I've asked the eyewitnesses. The New Testament is written by people not who are guessing or hearing secondhand. It's written by eyewitnesses who are telling us, I'm telling you this happened. You need to know for sure. You don't need to be building your life on, well, we're kind of hoping this might be, maybe this happened. We kind of heard these stories. No, 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 no. Luke says, I want you to know this is really seriously true. He did his research. It's a trustworthy account. And he says, I want you to follow my evidence. I want to leave behind some stuff. And so he begins with this timestamp. Notice in verse in the days of Herod, king of Judea. This is a political person within the Roman Empire that you can look in history and see where he ruled and when he ruled. 37 to 4 BC. You don't need just, don't trust Luke. Go back there. Trace his race. I'm, I'm leaving behind this map for you. I'm leaving behind some stuff to tell you. This really happened. I'm telling you, when, this is not a once upon a time. You know what that means when you read that? Once upon a time. It's a timeless story that didn't happen. It's making it up, and it might be some good morals, but it didn't necessarily happen. He doesn't do that. He says, in the days of Herod. In Judea he says go ahead and check me out go ahead and look it up I'm not, I'm not asking you to believe something that didn't happen and this is how he introduces Zechariah and Elizabeth and then John the Baptist comes around and then in verse chapter 1 verse 26 if you look at another timestamp listen he is he is dropping behind little stuff he's not trying to he's not trying to trick you he says in verse 26 in the sixth month an angel Gabriel sent by, from God uh, to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, right? To a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph. All right, so six months later, we're being able to time it. Six months later from when that happened with uh, Zechariah comes um, this angel talking to Mary. We're going to talk about what she knows here in just a second. Uh, but it's going to happen in Nazareth. And what do you know about Nazareth? Historically, anybody remember from Scripture? What do we know about Nazareth? What? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, I guess it does. That's, that's one of those mysterious prophecies. He will be called a Nazarene, but the, the Bible never says that. You know, Matthew says, the Bible says he'll be called a Nazarene, and we're like, really? Don't see it anywhere. It must be something about the original language, like root, like he's saying. Yes? It must not have been. Why do you say that? You are so good. When they tell me that you aren't, I'm going to tell them you are. Here's what is said in John chapter 1. Nathaniel, Philip found Nathaniel and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathaniel said, Can anything good come out of there? There's not a university there. There's nothing interesting there. There's no king that would come out of there. It's like, 
Goober Town? Really? It came out of Goober Town? So this, this is not like anything you would expect. And yet here Luke is telling you the facts. He's getting very detailed. And here's what we learned from Gabriel. Okay, You see this in verses 30 to 35, which we won't read. But here's what you know about Jesus, because we're trying to figure out what do we know about him when he comes on the scene here. He, you'll call him Jesus. That's what you're going to name him. God says, I'm not leaving the name up to you. You don't have to look through the baby names, the hot baby names of the first century to figure out what you're going to name your kid. Don't you worry about, you know, you're a teacher somewhere and you have that horrible kid, but you're, you're going to name your kid after him. And all you think about those nightmares. No, no, I'm going to tell you, you're going to call him Jesus. He is going to be great. He's going to be son of the most high. This is Mary, the Virgin Mary, this young teenage girl. God will give him the throne of David. He's going to rule forever. That, that, that king of David you've been longing for, it's him. And he's going to be the last one on the reign, on the, thro the throne of David. And he will be the son of God. He will be holy. That's what Gabriel tells Mary. And Mary contemplates how significant this is. And then she bursts out in meditative song. The Magnificat, I think is what we call it. So here she is hearing this. Now, will a mama forget this? Is this a conversation? Oh, yeah, I forgot. There was an angel talked to me. If you get visited by an angel, will you remember it forever? You will remember it forever. So I want you to know nearly everything in this chapter, how Luke is not an eyewitness. How did he get this information? There's only one way. And what is that? He had to have interviewed Mary. That's the only resource for this. So he sits down. I'm, I'm, I'm giving you an orderly account. There's many eyewitnesses out there. I'm giving you an orderly account. I'm giving you something you can be confident about. I sat down with Mary. And when you sit down with somebody, this is very difficult. Listen, when you're about to do a funeral for a group of people, you sit the family down and you say, tell me all your stories. And do you know what the overwhelming response from the family is? Anybody want to guess? Can't think of a single thing. Because you're asking them directly. It kind of takes a while for those stories to start coming out. you just you got to have an occasion to remember something. What is it that, that here's, here's, I see Luke saying, Mary, I'm going to set you up 10 o'clock next Tuesday. We're going to have an interview, and I, wanna, I want you to tell me everything about Jesus' birth. Was it hard for her to recount this? No. She can remember every word that angel said. She remembers what she sang when she heard it. She remembers all the things. And by the way, how many times we're going to see it tonight? She treasured these things in her heart, or she was astonished. It just absolutely filled her mind with wonder. I mean, when, you when this happens to your kids, and we all say to ourselves a lot of times when our kids are little, I'm going to remember this moment forever, but we don't unless we write it down, unless it's those, unless it's those significant moments that you put in your heart because they're funny or they're precious to you. And when somebody mentions something about their childhood, here come the stories. Even right now, if you ask Don Smith about Terry growing up, he's got three or four stories he will absolutely tell you with crystal clarity. We just do that. We have these things. And so we have Mary learning this from Gabriel. Mary contemplates this. She sings. And then comes the other timestamp, chapter 2. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus, the name of the dude, 
that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Is Luke saying, I don't want you to check me I don't want you to check me out. I don't want you to follow me. I want to make sure you can't really know this story. No, no. I'm giving you every detail I can. Look him up. Look who the governor was. Look who the who the Caesar was. Look at this stuff about the census. Go ahead. Be skeptical. Check it out in the history books. It happened right here. I love this. Luke is giving us every reason to be confident. The shepherds come on the scene. You know the shepherds. We had the, G- we had the birth story back in December, right? But the, the shepherds are sung to by angels, and it's so overwhelming to them. Uh, angels appear to them, and then they book it to Bethlehem, right? And they told Mary, right? When they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them, what the angels told them concerning this child. Verse 18, all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them, but Mary... Mary heard it, and it wasn't just something she heard and marveled. It's something she treasured in her heart, pondering them deeply. She put it down in there for the day when Luke would ask her. She put it down there. Now, you can't know all the implications of this thing. We'll see that in a minute. But you've got to put that in there. And that's going to be the second application, I think, from this when we get there. Um, they circumcised the child the eighth day. That's the day they gave him officially the name of Jesus. Purification for a mother to be done at the temple after the birth of a child is 33 days after the birth for a boy, 66 after girls. That's in Leviticus chapter 12. And read that whole chapter about what you have to do after you give birth and where you go to the temple and what you offer. And you see them offering the sacrifices of the young pigeons, right? You see that in verse 24. According to the law of the Lord, how many times that phrase appears in the first two chapters? According to the law of the Lord, pair of turtle doves, two young pigeons. They were obviously not wealthy. So they offered up the sacrifice of the poor for their cleansing. So somewhere around... The circumcision and then 33 days, somewhere around 40 to 50 days, they load Jesus up and take him to Jerusalem and present him at the temple. And while there, they have this amazing interaction with this old man named Simeon in verse 32. And this is what Simeon reveals. Simeon knows he's not going to die until he sees the Messiah. And he sees Jesus. He knows it's the Messiah. And he says, now I can die, right? But this is what he says. He's a light for the revelation of the Gentiles, the glory of Israel. That's one. He's destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel. We know that. He's destined to be a sign spoken against. He's not going to be approved. He's not going to be liked. The thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And then this last little piece. Mary, your own heart is going to be pierced through. He is going to break your heart heart and in verse 32 verse 33 where is it verse 35 sword pierce her heart but verse 33 mary and joseph once again marveled at what was said about him all this stuff was happening it's going into their head they go back home to galilee 
to Nazareth, and there he grows up, and he will be called a Nazarene, which, again, is a very perplexing passage. But there are two things we know between um, that presentation in the temple and this scene we're about to diagnose at, at the age of 12. What are two things you know just put your thinking caps on about Jesus' childhood that happened between presentation at the temple and age 12. Two things you know. We don't know much there, but we do know a couple of things. One is, because of the threat of Herod, they had to go to Egypt for a little bit of time until Herod died. You remember this in Matthew chapter 2. No one knows how long or what age he was, but he was very young. Obviously, when you're, when you're saying kill the children two years old and under, they're taking a guess about how old Jesus would have been at that time. So somewhere around the age of maybe a year and a half, and the time that Herod dies, no one really knows, probably anywhere from a couple of months to a couple of years that he spent in Egypt. It's only 60 miles away, so it's not like just like a world away. But So for a little bit of time, they are in Egypt, so you know that. And then... And then we know he was part of a family because they start asking questions about Jesus when he comes. Aren't his brothers and sisters here with us? Isn't this the carpenter? So what was he trained in? Carpentry like his father? And somewhere along the way, other brothers and sisters, Catholics don't believe that. She was a perpetual virgin, but the Scripture seems to say, uh-uh, there were others. So here's, a, I, think, uh, I think I put the time, did I put the chronology in here? Yeah, born in Bethlehem, circumcised eighth day, Jerusalem at the age of about 40 days or so, returned to Nazareth, escaped to Egypt, and then he goes back to Nazareth because he's going to be called a Nazarene. And we also know that he goes to Jerusalem every year for the Passover because that's what we read earlier. Now I want to read one passage that I think is, quite telling, which Terry read today for the Lord's Supper for one of the services. Um, we did that one earlier, so I'll skip that. The book ends of 40 and 52. Next screen. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. Jesus, while God, had to learn. And what I'm dying to know is, when did he learn he was the Messiah? No one can answer that question. But I want you to know, he didn't come down here on oh, the Messiah, follow me. He had to grow into it. He had to mature into it. I promise you, at six days old, he wasn't speaking the Sermon on the Mount. And I don't know when he learned what he learned, and, and people debate that all the time, and I find it a fascinating. It's a useless thing to get dogmatic about, but it's fun to just think about how his learning had to grow over that time. Notice in these verses that his family's very faithful. We read that earlier, the, the verses between 40 and 52. His, fa his family was faithful. They were at the temple all the time. They went every year to Jerusalem. They go to Jerusalem all the time, and they worship on a regular basis. Um, and, and so he was used to being in a family that did things by the command of the Lord. 
after the feast was over, uh, again, as we read before, uh, they, the family heads home, and Jesus is discovered at the end of day one, missing. So the family books it back, takes another day to go to Jerusalem, and then they take a day to wander around Jerusalem trying to find where he is, and they find him in the temple courts where all the teach- much of the teaching scenes of Luke and Acts happen in the temple courts. It wasn't in the official temple areas of, of like where the Day of Atonement was. It, it was in the courts where people could mingle. And that's where all the teachers would gather, and I guess on a daily basis. And suddenly a 12-year-old shows up and stays around for three days with all these people, which is a fascinating scene to think about. Uh, and it says that he was listening to them. He was asking them questions as a 12-year-old. You are not an official adult in Judaism until you're 13, the bar mitzvah. And so as a 12-year-old, he would have still been considered a boy or a child. And here he is, but he's not precocious. He's not obnoxious and arrogant. He seems to be learning. But even as he is asking questions, he is being asked questions because he's responding to those questions of verse 47. So here's this 12-year-old being asked questions by the teachers of all. That must have been just amazing for Joseph and Mary to see this. Uh, And they are astonished. Um, Son, why are you treating us? Or why have you treated us like this? And here's my question for you, if you feel like responding. Um, What is the tone of that question? Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. What was the tone? Because we don't have a tone. We don't have an audio version. You just got to imagine. Was this a bit of a reprimand? Was it a bit of a castigation maybe? Right? Like, you know, this was kind of terrible. I think her adrenaline is now calming, but it's still in there, and it comes out in the tone of voice. Son, why are you? Why have you done this? to Your father and I have been looking all over the place for you. Anybody else hear this different in your head when you read it? Do you hear voices in your head when you read? Anybody else hear voices in their head when they're... Because, I mean, you you hear it. If it's a story, you hear it. Um, Do they have a right to be angry at Jesus here? You think so? Has he done anything wrong? You ever wonder, what did he eat? Where did he sleep during these three days? You know, what, that's my problem. I, I'm just like, I, uh, where's my baby sleeping, right? I mean, where, who's feeding him? And apparently th- those things are n- not really addressed in this story. But those are humanity things, right? But, but he, he doesn't answer. By the way, these are the first words of Jesus, right? First words ever spoken, recorded. By Jesus. And you wonder, did he say mama or dada first? And the answer is dad. He said dada first. And the words he says back, and again, we don't have a tone for this one either. He says, well, why were you searching for me? Did you not know I must be about my father's business? Didn't you know this was where I would be? Now, the thing that's interesting... We're going to get to application here in a minute. 
he kind of rebukes her and like, do you, do you know who I am? All the stuff that you've known about me, doesn't that kind of filter in where you should have been looking? I mean, you, you should know. Is this rude? I just asked if she was angry, and most of you said yes, but is this an obnoxious teenager response? Did it come with an eye roll? You don't think it did. So what do you think the tone was, David? Okay. 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 You think it's a statement. Okay, and that's a valid... It's a statement that he's, he's come into this, and I have to believe that by this time... Mary has shared some of these ponderings with Jesus himself. Right? Wouldn't you think? Let me tell you the circumstances of your birth. At what age would she do that? Let me tell you what the angel said. And all the things that we heard from from Gabriel, do you think she told him? Anybody guess? I mean, there's no right or wrong answer here, but I'm I'm thinking he goes, "Um, you know, you... You really should have known, given all that you know. Um, obviously, this wasn't a sinful response from a teenager. I know, I know that teenage responses can be sinful. Is there an amen in here? I know that they can. But I know this one wasn't because he didn't sin. So whatever this tone was, he was saying factual stuff. Um, but as soon as he does this, you know, okay, they're back together. Um, they did not understand <laughs> what he was saying. He understood himself more than they did. They did not understand what he was saying. So listen, I, I just want to give a lot of you a lot more confidence. If the perfect son was not understood by his parents, then what's the rest of the sentence? You ain't going to understand yours either. Isn't that true? You are not going to understand your teenager. So just go, if he was perfect, you still wouldn't understand him, right? Because Jesus was perfect and they still didn't understand. So here's the thing. All these things she's treasuring up in her heart aren't clear all at once. They're in there, and they're working their way out, and she's starting to see it. When she starts comparing what God has put in her with what she sees in Jesus, it's going to come together eventually, but it doesn't come instantly, and it won't for you either. And that's one of the applications of this. Um, What does he do then, though? And I love this line. Um, By the way, I wonder what Joseph felt. Your father and I have been looking for you. Did you not know I would be in my father's house? What's he saying? Your father and I have been looking for you. Didn't you know I would be in my father's house? We're not, the the words are the same word in Greek, but it's not referring to the same person. Jesus knows. Jesus knows. Okay, so, is that really the bell for like, you might know what, 550? 
Five till. Okay, I got some time. They said I can go to eight ten. All right. Uh, and, and what he ends up going then, it says, uh, treasured up all these things. Well, what's, and they did not understand what he's saying. He went down with them, came to Nazareth, and was submissive to them or obedient to his parents. What should a person who's about their father's business be doing at age 12? What should a young person who is about the father's business be doing at age 12? Obeying their parents. That's what God wants you to do at age 12. Even if you're going to be the savior of the world at age 33. At age 12, obey your parents. And that's what we need to say to our kids. You know what God wants you to do? Now, you know, you should obey your parents because they deserve it and they respect and all the words they do. But there's another reason. You need to be honoring your heavenly father. You can't do that without obeying your earthly father. That's an amazing connection that needs to be made. And Jesus increased in wisdom after his mother pondered these things in her heart. Now, what's the significance of all this, right? You got this story. Oh, cool. That's neat. We all know the story. But what's the moral of the story? And I'm going to give you a chance to say, here's what I think is interesting. But here's the first one. There's two of them I see in here. This is the first time anyone calls God Father. They don't call God Father in the Old Testament. That, that close relationship wasn't revealed like that back there. And Jesus comes to an understanding at age 12, before his bar mitzvah a year later, that he was in some kind of special relationship to God that no one else will ever share. And he reveals God as Father in a way that no one else could. He's making it clear, I know who my real Father is. And much of the time, what the earthly Father wants from him is also what the heavenly Father wants from him. But sometimes it's not. And when it's not, you have to go with the heavenly Father. Is that not true? Is that not true? It's hard to hear it. It's hard to say it sometimes. But I have to believe that part of the way Jesus grew into this is the way his earthly father raised him. We're going to do things according to the law of God. We're going to be at Jerusalem like we're supposed to be at the Passover every single year. And it's costly and it's time-consuming, and it's inconvenient, and I have to get out of my ball games, and I have to get out of my work, and I have to get out of my life for a while to be faithful to the Passover, but that's what you do when you are people of the law. That's what you do. So through that training and the custom and all that stuff, he came to learn his heavenly Father too. Here's what I would say. I hear this every once in a while. I see this thing people complain about. Uh, I don't like the church because I was made to go to church growing up. Good. You should be. Don't tell me I was drugged church. I was drugged to this. I was drugged, and that's as bad as any drug you're going to have. I've heard that before too. That's ridiculous. I think you should have to go to church because your parents tell you to. But at some point, it shouldn't be your earthly father's responsibility. It should be because you love your heavenly father that you come. And until that transition is made, 
Your parents need to drag you to church every single time it's open. You want to call it abuse later on? Go ahead and write your biography and cry and whine and complain about all that all you want to. But one of these days, hopefully, you'll thank them for it. But until it's the Heavenly Father driven, it's okay to be parent driven. It's okay. That's what Jesus was. And so he knew he had this special relationship, but he also knew something else. Because God is my Father, I have to be about my Father's business. It's this phrase that is so rich, and you'll see it all through the Gospels. It's day, D-E-I. You'll see it on the screen here. Day, it is necessary. It's necessary. There are some things, and you all know this, you're here on a Sunday night. And you're here later than you have to be because it's VBS, which means you're devoted to this. There are things that when you realize you are a child of your Heavenly Father, that you simply must do. Yes, it's a great blessing, but it's also responsibility comes with childhood or sonship with God. So this phrase appears 18 times in the book of Luke, and it's like it's like when Jesus says, I know I have to do something. And it's not like, well, I, I've got to, I've got an appointment. No, it's God would have me do. Let me give you one. Um, oh, boy. I'll give you one. Zacchaeus, I must eat at your house. He didn't have to eat at Zacchaeus' house. What do you mean by a must eat at your house? There's an appointment on here. Uh, I must preach in other towns too, Luke 4, 43. That's why I've come. I gotta be a pre- I'm not just a healer, I'm a preacher. Now, my favorite one of all time doesn't come from Luke at all. It comes from John chapter 4. Do you remember when he had to, they had to travel and he had to go through Samaria? Do you remember that? If you've ever heard a sermon on John 4, everybody stresses this. He had to go through Samaria. No, he didn't. None of the Jews did. None of the Jews would go in there if their life depended on it. He didn't have to go. There were many routes around there. Why did he have to go through there? Because God had an appointment for him there, and he was going by God's appointment book, not his own. There are some things, church, I believe... We must do if we're children of God. And one of them is, we don't even question Sunday morning where we should be. But that's an easy one we talk about a lot. There are other things. There are other things we must be doing if we are our Father's children. One last thing, let me just say this is a last one. I'd like to dwell on this some more and ask you some more, but we're not going to be able to share collective wisdom in here. You just have to rely on mine. The other one is this. There's a lot of ignorance in the Gospels and even in the book of Acts where Jesus says something and nobody understands what he's talking about. And this is one of those scenes. The parents keep treasuring up things in their head and keep remembering things, but they don't know what it means. And even the apostles, as it goes to the book of Luke, when when he says to them, I'm going to have to suffer and die and after three days rise, we have no idea what you're talking about until the resurrection. And then when the resurrection happens, it says, and then they remembered his words. Here's the importance of putting the word in your head. 
Not every word and not every word you read or study or preach to or, or someone stresses to you, not every word from God goes into your brain and you understand it fully right now. But put it in your head anyway because one of these days it's going to be unveiled and you're going to have that aha moment and that's when faith goes pop just like that. And it's an amazing thing how it happens. So when you study this and you say, I'm reading this but I don't understand it, it's okay. Read it anyway. Read it anyway and put it in there. And one of these days, one of these days, it, it just comes to life. And you realize now what, what he was saying all along. And that's what happens in this story. I find it amazing that Jesus slowly comes into who he is and his parents. I think, I think what the angels say is really amazing. But I don't think that that clears everything up for Mary. When you hear him, the angel Gabriel say who Jesus is going to be, it doesn't tell you that at age 12 he's going to be in the temple for three days absolutely blowing the minds of these teachers in the courts. That's not what you picture when you hear those words, but you know what? When they happen and they combine with the words in your head, it's like, oh my, that's who this is and that's who I am. All right, sounds like we have to wrap up. So we're just going to wrap up with a prayer before the kids invade us. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for who you are, grateful for what your son has done in coming to this earth as a human being and growing into his identity as the son of God and then revealing that identity and our identity too in a process of revelation to us. And God, we are so sorry that we are so slow to understand but Father, please, please help us as we take your word into our brains and our minds to treasure it up in our hearts and then see it in life and marvel at who you are and enrich ourselves on who we are. And Father, as we come to understand you as our Father too, help us to see what we must do as your children. And may we have great pleasure in doing the things that please you. May that be our delight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.